If we went to Iran shopping center and asked random people the question, what is your greatest need? I wonder what kind of answers we'd get. I guess it would depend who we asked. If we asked a rational, scientific kind of a person, they might say, oxygen. We can't survive more than a few minutes without it. If we asked a romantic, they'd probably say, love. We all have a need to love and be loved. If you asked a member of the 60s group, the Hollies, who just happened to be wandering around Orion, he might combine the first two answers. Do you remember that song, uh, All I Need Is The Air That I Breathe And To Love You? That song did make it as far as Australia, didn't it? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> you never know. If you ask someone on the verge of bankruptcy, they tell you that their greatest need is money. If you ask someone that was working too hard, they might say a good night's sleep or a holiday. Ask a teenager, and they may well tell you that their phone is their greatest need. And if you ask someone who is suffering from a physical disease or ailment, they might say health, wellness, or healing. But according to the Bible, none of those things is our greatest need. Our greatest need, whether we realize it or not, is our need of forgiveness. Without forgiveness, we cannot have a right relationship with God. And the primary reason for our existence is to be in relationship with our Creator. Uh, Today, we read about a man who was in need. He was paralyzed. And we read about two groups of people. Those who understand that Jesus could meet the man's needs and those who would stand in the way of anyone coming to Jesus. We see a contrast between the two groups. One sees Jesus as the answer, and the, one just, the other one just wants to criticize Jesus and trip him up. Today, we're going to hear about the friends and the Pharisees. But before we do that, let's just uh, recap where we've got to in Luke's Gospel. Uh, so we're working through Luke's Gospel, but we're only looking at uh, key passages between Christmas and Easter. So uh, we're, we're just skimming the surface, really. And I hope that all of us would read the whole of Luke's Gospel during this time uh, that we're, we're studying it at least once. So open the Bibles in your own time and, and read the, the parts that perhaps we haven't read in church. Because if your entire exposure to Scripture is one 20-minute sermon a week, then it's going to take forever to get a really good understanding of the Bible. So at Christmas, uh, we looked at the birth of Jesus. Uh, Matthew's Gospel concentrates on the, the Magi, the wise men from the East. Luke talks about the shepherds and the angels. And then Jesus is presented in the temple as an infant, and an old man named Simeon and uh, a prophetess named Anna uh, affirm Jesus' identity and mission. Luke only talks about one event, more of an incident really, in Jesus' childhood, when at the age of 12, uh, Mary and Joseph lost Jesus for three days. Uh, Losing the Savior of the world is a fairly serious blunder, I think, but um, they managed to find him again. He was hanging out with the teachers in the temple courts, amazing them with his wisdom. Luke then jumps forward 18 years or so. We see John the Baptist preparing the way, and then John baptizes Jesus, straight after which 
Jesus goes out into the desert, into the wilderness to be tempted or tested for 40 days. And this is the final stage in his preparation for public ministry. Jesus starts his public ministry by walking around Galilee, um, preaching in uh, the synagogues of small provincial towns until he comes to his hometown of Nazareth, where they take great offense to him. They reject him completely, and they're on the verge of killing Jesus. They want to throw him off a cliff, but God enables him to escape. After this, Luke tells us of an occasion when Jesus drove out an impure spirit. He effectively performed an exorcism, um, showing that Jesus has total spiritual authority. And then Jesus heals many, beginning with Peter's mother-in-law. These are the first healings that Luke describes, but it seems that Jesus has already been healing people uh, as he traveled around Galilee. Uh, Chapter 5 begins with Jesus calling his first disciples, a group of unlikely, ordinary, down-to-earth fishermen. And we looked at that last week. And the final passage that precedes this one that we're looking at today is about Jesus healing a leper. Uh, leprosy was a debilitating skin condition. People didn't want to go anywhere near lepers. They didn't want to touch them. They were ostracized. But Jesus touched the leper. And instead of Jesus being contaminated, which is what everyone feared, it was the leper who was made clean, who was healed. So that brings us up to date. Uh, But it's important to see that Jesus had been active in Galilee for some time, and he'd already healed lots of people. News of Jesus, his power, his authority, his teaching, his wisdom had spread rapidly. At a time when uh, medical knowledge was very basic, they didn't really know how to cure anything. And Jesus could cure everything. And so news of him spread like wildfire. And uh, Jesus was in somebody's home teaching, as he often was, and there, the, the, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law there in that home. In fact, Luke tells us that they'd come from every town in Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. That's a lot of Pharisees. They're really out in force. This is the first time that Luke introduces the Pharisees to us, but we're going to hear a lot more about them. The Pharisees were essentially a religious pressure group. They were a movement that started with a good idea. They wanted people to obey the Bible, uh, the Hebrew Bible, what we know as the Old Testament. And I don't think any of us would have a problem with that. It would be a great thing if everyone obeyed the Bible, if they obeyed God. But the Pharisees were muddled in their thinking. They believed that if they intensified observance of the Jewish law, then God would act to liberate Israel from Roman oppression. As we know, at the time, uh, the people of Israel were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And of course, uh, understandably, they didn't like that. And from the Pharisees' perspective, it, it was kind of like, if we follow these rules and regulations not just the ones in the Bible, but uh, also these other rules and regulations that we've invented, uh, then uh, uh, then God will be pleased with us and he'll do 
uh, what he's promised to do. In other words, they thought that by keeping all these rules and regulations, they, it's almost like they could twist God's arm into doing what they wanted him to do. But they were so strict that they made people's lives a misery, binding them up with rules and regulations and red tape. Uh, the, the Pharisees' cause, if you like, was the coming kingdom of God. And now they hear about this young prophet, Jesus, who says a lot about the kingdom of God. He's drawing big crowds. He seems to be starting some kind of a movement, perhaps to rival their movement, the Pharisaic movement. He's unorthodox. He seems to have a different agenda. And rumors are circulating that he's been breaking Jewish laws and customs. And so the Pharisees turn out in force to get the measure of him. But instead of seeing what God was doing and rejoicing, the Pharisees just want to find fault. Sadly, we still see that from religious people today. And I think all of us have a bit of Pharisee in us. Uh, For example, if a homeless person came into the church, that would be wonderful, praise God. But maybe they wouldn't have had a chance to get a shower. Don't complain about the smell. I mean, offer them use of your shower, offer them a meal, offer them a place to stay, but never complain when God has brought someone into our midst. That said, one of the things I love about this church is when God brings us new people. They're accepted and loved and made welcome. Um, We're not a judgmental congregation, but some are, and that's why I mention it. And certainly the Pharisees were. They were judgmental fault finders and nitpickers. They were also hypocrites. They told everyone how to behave, but from God's perspective, their behavior was worse than anyone. In Matthew 23, Jesus lambasts the Pharisees for their religious hypocrisy. It's worth reading in full, but I'll just give you an example. Verse 23 to 24. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumming. They were so fanatical that they were literally tithing from their spice rack. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. It's funny, a lot of people steer clear of Christianity because they think that the church is full of religious hypocrites, Pharisees effectively. Well, Jesus couldn't stand religious hypocrites either, and he constantly came into conflict with them. The Pharisees were also separatists. The word Pharisee literally means one who is separated. They wanted to separate themselves from all non-Jews, from the Gentiles. They wanted to separate themselves from anything that would make them unclean in terms of ritual purity. They wanted to separate themselves from all non-religious Jews, those who weren't keeping the law closely enough, those who they uh, looked down on as being sinners. It's almost as if they thought that you could catch sin like a disease, catch it from other people, but they failed to acknowledge the sin in their own hearts. They wanted to separate themselves, cut themselves off from all that was impure. And some Christians 
take this stance today. They only hang out with other Christians, watch Christian films, listen to Christian music, read Christian books, and their kids watch nothing but VeggieTales. But we need to find a balance. Of course, we don't want to imbibe the worst that the world has to offer. There are films and books and there is music that is unedifying and is actually spiritually uh, quite harmful for us to, to keep exposing ourselves to those kind of influences. So we do need to be selective. Uh, Philippians 4 verse 8 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Our focus should be that which is good and wholesome. However, we can't cut ourselves off from the world. And if we try to, we won't be able to relate to anyone outside of the church. I expect you've heard it before, but we need to be in the world, but not of the world. We are in this world. We are part of society, but we have a different set of values and a a different perspective. But we need to be in the world, but not of the world, and especially when it comes to hanging out with non-Christians. Just last week, we saw that we are called to be fishers of people. We're called to reach out to others with the good news of Jesus. We can't do that if we separate ourselves from anyone who sees the world differently to we do. Actually, I think for us as a church, the problem isn't so much that we shun non-Christians. It's more that maybe we don't spend enough time together uh, getting to know each other in fellowship. Uh, But we'll look at that another time. So the Pharisees were judgmental hypocrites who separated themselves from anything and anyone that they considered to be unclean. And there were loads of Pharisees at this house where Jesus was teaching. And by this point, wherever Jesus went, people showed up in need of healing. So some men come carrying a paralyzed man on a makeshift stretcher, Uh, But they can't get through to Jesus because the house is absolutely packed. And it's likely that all the Pharisees have taken the front row seats. So this group of men, they're trying to get a broken person to Jesus. And it's the religious people who are in the way. Some things never change. Pharisees will always make it difficult for people to come to Jesus. But these men were determined. They went up on the roof, probably a flat roof with a set of stairs going up the outside, and they literally dug a hole in the roof or removed tiles or whatever it is they did. The point is they made this big hole in the roof, and they lowered the man through it to get him to Jesus. And this is actually pretty funny. You know, imagine, you know, me preaching now, and you start to hear stuff going on on the roof, and then bits of plaster start falling down, and this hole appears, and it's getting bigger and bigger, and Jesus is still teaching, and they're all pretty distracted. Uh, And then this stretcher gets lowered precariously down through the roof. It was the first century, so no one cared about health and safety, and just stops right in front of Jesus. He couldn't ignore that one. Now, we've heard a lot about the Pharisees. They would have prevented Jesus coming, uh, sorry, they would have prevented people coming to Jesus if they could. But what about this group of men who were doing the lowering? I've called them the friends. They were either friends or relatives of uh, the paralyzed man. They believed that Jesus could heal 
their paralyzed friend. They went to the house, they couldn't get in, but that didn't stop them. They were absolutely determined to bring their friend to Jesus. And they went to a lot of effort. I'm assuming that they had to repair the hole in the roof afterwards. And it raises an important question for us. What are we prepared to do to bring a friend to Jesus? Think about the person that you most want to them to put their trust in Jesus. Have you invited them to church? Have you invited them to an event that we're running, something like the men's breakfast next week? Have you bought them a Bible? Have you bought them a meal? Have you offered to pick them up and bring them to church? People need Jesus, and it's always a privilege to bring them to him, but it won't always be easy. So sometimes we've got to think about how to overcome the obstacles. So this paralyzed man, his friends overcame the obstacles, and they brought him before Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus said to him was, friend, your sins are forgiven. I mean, surely this man's need was obvious. He was paralyzed. He couldn't walk. He's on a stretcher. Well, to Jesus, this man's greatest need was immediately obvious because it's the thing that all of us need more than anything else. It was his need of forgiveness. All of us sin. We're flawed. We're messed up. We're fallen. We're broken. The Pharisees thought they could get right with God by following the rules, by uh, keeping the law. And they did keep a lot of laws and rules and regulations, but they neglected the more important matters of the law. Jesus said, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The truth is, none of us can keep God's law or obtain God's standards. That's why we need Jesus. Jesus died in our place. He took the punishment that we deserve, which is death and separation from God. He died and he rose to new life. And in so doing, he secured forgiveness and eternal life for everyone who puts their faith in him. The paralyzed man that we read about today, he did need physical healing. But healing without forgiveness could only ever be temporary. Even if he was completely healed, made whole, able-bodied, without forgiveness, at some point he would die and be separated from God. Forgiveness opens the door to everlasting life in a renewed and restored creation where we have uh, resurrection bodies that are made whole, free from disease and pain and illness and ailments. Forgiveness always leads to healing. For this paralyzed man, that was uh, more or less immediate, but his healing points to a deeper reality, the eternal healing and wholeness that is a future reality for everyone who turns to Christ. The Pharisees were outraged that Jesus should presume to forgive the man's sin. Who can forgive sins, they said, but God alone, which is kind of the point, isn't it? As far as they were concerned, there was a system by which people's sins could be forgiven, and it involved the Jerusalem temple and all that went on there. The sacrificial system, the cleansing rituals, the great festivals, not least the Day of Atonement. When Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, he bypassed the whole temple system 
and set himself up as the highest authority. The Pharisees got the point, but they wouldn't accept it. And there must have been a lot of sort of horrified, angry looks, a lot of muttering coming from the, the Pharisee, Pharisees' quarter. Jesus knows what they're thinking. He says, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Whereupon he heals the man who gets up, takes his mat, and goes home praising God. But even that didn't convince the Pharisees. Some people refused to believe regardless of the evidence. And as we'll see later, the the Pharisees won't accept Jesus' authority no matter what he does, even when he raises someone from the dead because Jesus didn't fit their agenda or their narrative. So we've seen two groups of people. Firstly, the Pharisees who wanted to prevent people coming to Jesus. Uh, the church, not, not necessarily this church, but the church in general, still has Pharisees in it today. Judgmental nitpickers, hypocrites, who think they're above hanging out with certain groups of people. And they still prevent people from coming to Jesus. They put people off Christianity. And then there were the friends. The friends who would stop at nothing to bring a needy person to Jesus. And that's how we want to be, because we know that Jesus is willing and able to meet our greatest need, our need for forgiveness. And forgiveness will in turn lead to healing, if not in this life, then certainly in the life to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we uh, search our hearts, we know that there is much Uh, within us much that is wrong, much that is uh, the opposite to how you would have us be. Uh, We're sinful and we need your forgiveness. And we thank you that you give us that forgiveness as a a free gift, a gift that uh, cost us nothing but cost you everything. Um, We pray, Heavenly Father, that we will look at the example of these friends and really desire to bring other people to you for healing, for wholeness. And we pray, Lord, that we will recognize any sort of Pharisaic tendencies we have to judge others, to look down on others, to elevate ourselves, all these, to, to, to be religious. Help us, Lord, to focus on our relationship with you, to be more like you, to love people and accept people and to point people to you who can, the only one who can uh, give us forgiveness and everlasting life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.